0: The following is a conversation. It has the features of any conversation, such as imperfectly expressed thoughts, ill considered opinions, and the notions of several sleep deprived brains. Try not to get your stethoscope in a twist about it.
1: What do you call a whole bunch of chess enthusiasts bragging about their chess games in an empty hotel lobby? (laughs) (laughs) Do tell.
2: A convention.
1: No, well, I guess I guess, but chestnuts boasting in an open foyer. Nice, well
2: played. Well played.
1: Well played. That one was good. Okay.
2: Very nice, Dr. Yerkowitz Have you seen the latest drop from the Zach and Fal YouTube channel?
3: I have not. No,
2: our own Fallon Jung here, um, who you met last time. Yeah, her, she and her her significant other have a YouTube channel where they have traveled. The world in a van, yes. And they just dropped their Mexico trip, Baja Mexico trip, and I thoroughly enjoyed watching it. You got you were having fun with friends. You were eating foods, incidentally throwing Getting up rid of those, those
1: foods. foods. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I just want people to go and listen to it because you guys are super cute.
1: Oh man, that well,
0: is really cute. Thank you. To- there's also some fun Halloween skits. Yeah, on I was about there, to say, yeah. check out the Halloween skit. Oh my yeah,
2: goodness!
1: Yeah.
2: wow. so anyway, you should check it out our I own celebrity know. right here
4: yeah
1: influencer i'm feeling a little blushy uh. <laughs> meandering in the margins
3: of medicine it's the shortcode podcast
1: weird news fresh views helpful clues and interviews by students for students subscribe to our weekly show at the shortcode.com
2: Welcome back to the Short Code Podcast, the show that gives you an inside look at medical school from the students drinking from that fire hose. It's a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. With me today in the SCP Studio, a special guest returns. Dr. Alana Yerkowitz is co-director of Stanford University's Primary Care for Cancer Survivorship Program. She's a science journalist and the author of a new book entitled Fragmented, A Doctor's Quest to Piece Together American Healthcare. And you are here for our November 9th episode and we all wanted to ask you to come back because we had such a good time talking to you. Welcome back to the Short Code Podcast.
3: I had a great time too. Happy to be back.
2: And of course I have a crew of CCOM students who have joined us today. It gives me great pleasure to tell you that we're joined by M2 Jeff Goddard. Hello. I'm over the moon about the presence of M1 Fallon Jung. Hi. Uh, I've never been happier that um, MD-PhD student Jacqueline Nielsen has arrived. Is that right? MD-PhD?
1: Yeah. Uh, hello. I
2: thought so. And what joy we're joined... By a new co-host, M1, Alex Nig. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Before we start, I do need to take a second. I want to take a second to thank Stacy in North Carolina. She brought a sticker and made a donation over at theshortcoat.com. She says the podcast is helpful in supporting her kid on her journey to medical school, which makes me very happy. Moms are pretty much the only ones who have ever donated to the Shortcoat podcast <laughs> that I can remember. And I, I just I love that. I love moms. Moms are great. Stacy, if you or your future medical student ever have any questions, we're here for you. Just drop us a line at theshortcodes at gmail.com.
1: Thanks, Stacy.
2: She rocks. Dr. Yerkowitz, uh, again, thanks for returning to the show. And listeners, you'll want to go back and listen to part one of our conversation. As I said, it was from November 9th. If you haven't already, uh, you can go to theshortcodes.com and look that up. Uh, because we had a great conversation about the challenges patients have in maintaining a consistent uh, doctor-patient relationship the shortcomings of electronic medical records and the other ways we try to keep track of what's happening to your patients and the need for better care continuity and coordination, particularly in cancer treatment.
4: Thanks. Looking forward to part two. I just wanted to say as a partner of someone in cancer survivorship who has had a really hard time finding continuity of care, even within one institution. It gives us so much hope that, like you've started this clinic and have this model, and hopefully it grows to other institutions to really fill in those gaps,
3: oh, well, I so appreciate you saying that it's I think there's a huge need for this model. I don't want to be the only person doing it. You know, I talk so much about this model because I want the next generation of of med students and residents to do something similar. and I just, I know it fills a huge need. So um, thank you for saying that.
5: Thank you. So I guess my first thought, one of the phrases that hit me, like, I don't know, it's like a bus. When I was reading the book, it was the chapter we were talking about medical students doing their like mobile clinics. And we talked, you talked about how that was a safety net, but then you said the line, the safety net, ha- that these safety nets, they have holes and that people fall through those holes. And that was it was very impactful as somebody who has definitely benefited from safety nets in my life and also probably fallen through some of those holes, especially as a child. It got me thinking a lot. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to stretch the analogy too much, but like how can we design better safety tarps um, that there are fewer holes for these types of things? I mean, we're talking about you know, cancer survivors are definitely people that fall through uh, the cracks, right? But There are a lot of people, especially people that don't have access to primary care, that we've created these safety nets like these mobile clinics or these like free community outreach programs or what have you. Um, But like you said, there are holes. How do we design a tarp that, that people aren't falling through the holes?
3: Yeah, I like that analogy. I don't think that's stretching the analogy too much at all. So I wrote about the safety clinics in particular when I was a resident and I was rotating through a safety clinic where the med students would see patients and then staff patients with me and other physicians. And the very first time I went there as a resident, I kind of pulled up into the parking lot and you know, I typed the address into my GPS and realized that I was actually heading to a school and it was a classroom that was doubling as an exam room. And so I kind of looked behind the basketball courts, figured out where I was supposed to go and, and realized that was the clinic. And the safety net was an amazing resource for these patients who often did have nowhere else to go. These We saw patients who had put off receiving care for financial reasons, sometimes for many years. I tell a story in the book about seeing this couple from Nigeria where both of them had problems. The man and the woman both had problems that really needed to be urgently treated The man was complaining about constant urination. And after doing a physical exam with the med student, we suspected that he might have prostate cancer. And she had been complaining about blurry vision. And after doing a physical examination, we suspected that she had cataracts that needed surgery. And we kind of made our diagnoses and then came the next huge hurdle, which was how do we actually get them the care that they need for these next steps? So I thought about what I would do, let's say if I were in my clinic, I would order a PSA, a blood test on him, a urine test. And if either of those came back suggestive of prostate cancer, I thought about the next steps, which would be possibly a pelvic MRI and a biopsy. And what I realized was, you know, we could offer some of these steps, but then the next layers would be so onerous to get these patients care. Like we could order a blood test and a urine test, but suppose those came back suggestive of prostate cancer. We still had to connect these patients with an on, with a physician who could provide them ongoing, regular, continuous care, whether that was an oncologist or perhaps a primary care doctor or, in her case, perhaps an ophthalmologist. And so what I realized in the safety net was we can provide these intermediate steps. Um, we can be a bridge between someone who is getting perhaps no care but the ultimate goal is still to connect people to someone. And I put someone in quotes so many places, you know, when I write about this, because you still need that con- continuous physician who can then provide the next steps. And I think the safety net, you know, currently know can probably. serve as that great intermediate step. It's like a bridge. But the bigger hurdles were getting people insured and connecting them with a system that saw people who couldn't afford to get care. And I think that's, I mean, a a huge, a larger question about how we finance medicine in this country, what we should be providing people who can't afford to pay. I write in the book about legislation like MTALA, which without getting into the weeds too much, says that in an emergency situation, anyone can get care regardless of the ability to pay. Like if you come into the emergency room, it doesn't matter if you're uninsured or underinsured. If it's a medical emergency, you will get care. Now, that's great, right? But what about the next steps? And so what happens in the emergency room, to me, was similar to what I saw in free clinics. Like, you can get that emergency care. You can put that Band-Aid on. You can do kind of a transaction. You can do something that's one and done. Maybe we could suture a wound. Maybe we can prescribe antibiotics for a UTI. But anything that required chronic illness management, those patients would fall through the cracks.
5: And I think... I would just like to say that as the perpetual optimist in the room I am thrilled to live in a post 1980s circa 1980s society where Amtala exists right that that patients aren't dropped off in an emergency department by the other hospital that didn't want to deal with them they just take them to like another hospital like we we actually take care of patients in emergency situations i think that's a phenomenal step forward in recognizing that this is a human right um and yet there is a long way to go with it. Um, I guess kind of as a follow-up question, and hopefully this doesn't, I, I, I'd i like to say that I don't have an answer to this. I'm just, I'm trying to feel out where we should be putting our energy. You said last time that the phrase that stuck with me was that good medicine is rarely one and done. And I, as, as a medical student, you know, we want to do good. I've worked in these, our mobile clinic here, specifically as an interpreter for patients that don't speak English and and that's been a wonderful experience. And sometimes it is a one and done issue. Like they just, they need glasses or eye drops or they need to get treatment for an STI or something that is genuinely can be one and done, right? But a lot of the times, like you said, it needs more than that. And is, I guess my question is mobile clinics are good. Like student clinics are are doing some good in the world, but is it, would it be more advantageous? Would it be better overall for our patients to be using some of that time or or most of that time to be advocating for these um, long-term continuity of care to advocate for legislation that allows for more than just one and done care i guess i'm thinking of like that little girl on the beach that's like you know the throwing the starfish back into the water i don't know if you ever heard that parable and like yeah it matters for that one star starfish but also that one starfish is going to be back here on the beach unless we create a way for them um to not fall through the cracks again right so i don't know i don't know if i have an answer to that just a thought
3: I, I completely agree and I think part of it is just how we think about medical emergencies and how we even define medical emergencies. So Mtala was great legislation. EMTALA legislation said that you can't be turned away for a medical emergency um, regardless of your ability to pay. Now what counts though as a medical emergency? Medical emergencies are typically defined as those one and done transactions. You come into the emergency room or a free clinic and someone's having chest pain and you do some tests and you rule out that they're having a myocardial infarction, let's say. Mm-hmm. But in the book, I told a story about a man who came in and he had AML or Q myeloid leukemia. And you know, once he was diagnosed, once there was the medical emergency part of his presentation was treated, which was doing a procedure called leukophoresis to lower his white blood cells. Well, I would argue that getting treatment for the AML would still constitute a medical emergency, even if he didn't need to be hospitalized for that part of it. And so we define medical emergencies in certain ways, our legislation supports that, and all of our financial resources into free clinics and otherwise go into supporting that. I would argue that we need to redefine what constitutes an emergency, and that follow-up ongoing care with a physician who can care for a chronic illness is important enough. You know, it's as important as ruling out a heart attack. It's as important as putting a stent in and then sending someone on their way. It doesn't really make sense to me to define medical emergencies only as these transactions when so much of medical care today is living with chronic illness and it's living with chronic illness that needs ongoing treatment.
2: Um, it strikes me, oh, sorry, go ahead.
4: Well, I just sort of want to follow that Thinking about COVID and how much stress that put on our ERs and just beds in general, were there any advances to improving this MTALA to get people help with their chronic health conditions instead of always seeing them in the ER?
3: I think there was maybe some silver linings of COVID, if you could put it that way, to something that was so devastating. I think one of the things that happened with COVID, because the need for care was just so enormous, was that we expanded access to telemedicine and we expanded access to being able to do video calls and phone calls and have that count financially as a visit. You know, before 2020, if you as a physician did a phone call with a patient, that was uncompensated work. You know, it was something you'd be doing in your free time. And then after COVID, in most parts of the country, that did change. And so I think we've gotten more creative in how to care for people across the country who don't necessarily can travel for hours to access care. But honestly, I don't think it has truly moved the needle in terms of making that distinction between what counts as emergency care and what would qualify as an emergency outside the emergency room, where I would still argue that follow-up care after COVID. Like, let's say you had COVID and you were really sick and you were hospitalized and you had to be on a ventilator. Medical emergency, obviously. Now let's say you get off the ventilator and you are chronically weak or you have a chronic cough and you can't work anymore because of some of the sequela that you went through because of COVID. Not a medical emergency, right? But incredibly important. And that's where I don't think we have kind of defined, you know, in this nation, what counts as important medical care. And that's where the follow up is just so crucial. And I think we need to be devoting as much resources there as to that initial medical emergency.
1: Out of curiosity, are there any rules or laws against student run clinics or mobile clinics doing like video calls or like Zoom calls with patients that we know or that they know that they've already seen? And furthermore, can mobile clinics hold records of
3: patients that they've seen? So to my knowledge, there are no laws or rules that would apply to the student clinics as long as they're being supervised by a physician who follows the same rules that any other clinics have to follow. And I'm sorry, what was the second part
1: of your question? Can mobile clinics keep records of patients that they've already seen?
3: Oh, yes. So they can. And so when I worked at a mobile clinic, the student-run clinic, I had um, access to some records. It was a different electronic medical record-keeping system. Um, from typically the clinic or hospital where I worked. So if we did end up getting helping that patient get insured and then sending them to a regular primary care doctor within the regular network where I worked, those records were disconnected. And so some of these are homegrown electronic medical records. But yes, student-run clinics can absolutely keep records. And that's how we can do some of those follow-up visits, even if there are still bridges to long-term care.
2: I think the, the, the thing that strikes me about this conversation is that I, I do feel like humans are very bad at coming up with systems that account for that account for everybody, all of the possible permutations. It's uh, I, I think that, you know, we tend to create systems and go and then go, OK, we've done that good enough. And then we stop paying attention to it. And any change that happens is very incremental over time
5: so i'm gonna make an argument for incrementalism real quick <clears throat> first dave and i had a lovely conversation about the what the brain is for before before oh, the podcast today. Oh, okay. humans are bad at nuance because the brain is lazy and it is evolutionarily advantageous to be lazy, to kind of set it and forget it. And we like, that's why we build boxes. That's why we have categories. That's why. Yeah, yeah. You right?
2: I mean, it's hard to plan for every single thing.
5: Exactly. Yeah. And so I think that it is it is absolutely wonderful that we create a system that's quote unquote good enough and then we continue to incrementally improve it to if make sure do more that. people fit, right? Yeah. Um. As an example, the United States was founded um, as an idea of... All people are created equal, right? And at first it was white landowners, then it was just white men, and then it was white and black men, and then it was some women got into, got into the picture as well, and then like civil liberties started growing and we started creating more protected classes and realizing we, we were building a bigger tent, right, as we go. I would be thrilled if in 1789, when they wrote the Constitution, they just like had these things already in their minds. I think the world would have been a much better place, but at the same time, there's something to be said about and And it's almost endearing to watch our our species like slowly but surely be be more cognizant of the fact that there are these nuances that we need to take into account and then trying to build systems for it. But it requires such complexity that at the beginning, like it's kind of like you just have to get in the door, you know?
2: yeah, I guess you're right. I mean. yeah, you have so, to start somewhere. so I
5: think with something like Amtala, I one hundred percent agree. like we get in the door of saying, like, if they're gonna die, you take care of them. And now we say, but that condition, they're still going to die from it, even if it isn't today. So now you still take care of them. Like, I, for me, that would be the logical incremental step um, into the future. And I agree, like, I mean, there is an ideal world and that's not it. That Like, that's still not enough. But, like, a step in the right direction by recognizing, like, it, this is just what's right. You know, like, if there's a, if by not taking care of this person, they will eventually succumb to this ailment. I have a moral obligation to take care of this patient and and if we can codify that i think that would be a good step and i'm not against steps
3: i agree i mean i think it sets the right precedent part of what Mtala did was just define things and Mm -hmm. it defined what we care about enough that finances were not an issue and you know we said that if you're going to die of a heart attack it doesn't matter what your insurance is or whether you have insurance and i think we can just expand that definition I think we can expand that definition to chronic illness. I think we can expand that definition to the sequela of a heart attack. And you know, it just sets us in the right direction. And I think um, another thing I would say, I, I also kind of uh, argue for incrementalism because so much of what I argue and I, what I've argued in this book and what I've argued today is that good medicine is <laughs> incrementalism. like that we talked about it on a systems level, but also on an individual level. Like when you're taking care of a patient in today's day and age where chronic illness is so much of patient care, there's very little of good medicine that's still one and done. Like, yes, there are still some situations where you suture a wound or you do a joint injection and you can send someone off in their merry way and they're fine and you never need to see them again. But, you know, in my practice, so much of what I do is, let's say we start a new medicine and then I have them come back in a month. Did that new medicine work? (laughs) Or we order some tests to figure out, you know, a mystery ailment. And then I have them come back and we go over test results. And maybe all the test results are normal. And now we need to decide what to do. I mean, do we keep looking? Do we just try to treat something empirically? That's what good medicine is. And this has evolved over time because more people are living with chronic illness. You know, I talk in the book about how our financial model is essentially it's fee for service, which goes back as far as the days of Hammurabi, where all of medicine was one and done. Like again, you suture a wound and you got paid five shekels or something like that. We can't do that anymore. We just can't. I mean, whether you're in- We, primary we just care got too or, good at it. Like we, yeah. we
5: put ourselves out of business in that particular area, I think, more or less.
3: Like think of even of an oncology patient. I mean, okay, fine. Maybe some early stage cancers you treat with surgery and then the cancer doesn't come back. But what about giving chemo? You don't give chemo one time. I mean, you give chemo and then you get scans and then you see if it's working and then you change the chemo or you don't change the chemo. Um, This is what medicine is in the year 2023. And I don't think our financial model has really adapted to that reality.
2: Shortcodes, if this episode is worth listening to this far, it's worth sharing. So blast us on your socials. And if you want a sticker for your trouble, send us a screenshot. Thanks.
0: Also, I think it's difficult when, in terms of finances, we're not compensated as well for things like preventative care and focusing more on prevention of those emergent situations and... I think it's hard because you mentioned in the last episode about how, you know, that phone call to a patient to discuss those test results or responding back or having a longer conversation about some behavior change that they want to make. A lot of times those things are not compensated for in a monetary form from things like insurance companies. And so it makes it harder For providers to do that and to provide good care as well when you're having to meet certain goals and expectations that aren't truly defined in what would be the best medical care for the patient.
3: Yes, I think preventative care could also be defined as a medical emergency. I mean, if we're just going to broaden the umbrella here, you know, best case scenario, we prevent this chronic illness from happening in the first place by... You know, maybe have has prediabetes and they're kind of teetering towards diabetes. You know, you want to prevent that. You want to get to a situation where they're not going to lose their vision or their leg because of uncontrolled diabetes. And sometimes it's not covered, but I would say more often it's just reimbursed at lower rates, um, you know, which speaks again to just values that preventative care tends to be reimbursed at lower rates than a procedure as doing something like a joint injection that's one and done. It's one of the reasons that fewer people go into primary care. I think the reasons for this are really complex, and we talked a bit about it last time. But if you're going to be reimbursed at a lower rate for talking about smoking cessation, you know, than doing a procedure, I understand why people are flocking away from primary care. And I interviewed someone in the book named Alan Glasseroff, who created this clinic at Stanford where I work called Stanford Coordinated Care, which was this innovative primary care clinic where the doctors had two-hour intakes with patients. Um, they had one hours for one hour for follow-up. Um, they had a whole team that was co-located in the same place. That had a social worker and an occupational therapist, um, and medical assistants who were called patient care coordinators. And they were able to do so much for their patients with that co-location and that team-based care, and that time to focus on prevention and to you know interview. Uh, patients motivational, do motivational interviewing with patients so that they can also take control of their health. But one thing that he said um, was that if you're financially incentivized not to send people to the ER, the system will come up with an answer. And that quote really stuck with me. And that's why I included it in the book as well. Um, you know, they were financially incentivized to do everything they could preventatively to keep people out of the ER. You know, they were getting this upfront lump sum from insurance companies to do whatever it took to keep the patients healthy, to keep them out of the emergency room. And there's not just one way to do this. You know, this was one example of a primary care clinic that I think did it really well. There are other ways. But if the financial incentives say, focus on prevention, keep people away from classic medical emergencies, I think there's so much room for creativity. And we will come up with many clinics that follow suit.
5: I'm very fond of, I, so the two sons wrote a book. It's a Chin Med. I'm not sure if you've heard of them. They're on the East Coast, but it's a primary care group that it just started by a father immigrant and his sons kind of took it over. Now they started in Florida now they're in like 11 states. And so it's grown significantly, but it's value-based care. And that's their only financial model is value-based care. So they get paid lump sums from the insurance companies for all of their patients and they focus on geriatric medicine. So they're doing a lot of Medicare patients and that's essentially their model is how can we create an incentive for ourselves to make sure that our patients are avoiding things like the emergency department are avoiding these costly procedures. And for some patients, because the model allows it and it's not fee for service and the patient can actually handle it. For some of those patients, it might mean that they use what I think might be an extreme example, but we met the patient had like a heart attack. We met with him every single day for a month where we had them in and we were just talking to them and having conversations about how can we do these incremental changes in their lives, right? Like you ate a salad today. That's great. Like you you went for a walk today. That's great. These are like, baby steps i because i agree that we have to create incentives and disincentives right so like if we think of like rules and, and laws and stuff as like the field that we're allowed to play in right and we as a society decided we're going to make it off 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 limits to just let somebody die without caring for them because they don't have m- money anymore that was a impala that does that's we we drew the line there right i think that it's reasonable to draw the line a little bit closer and say okay you can't you can't skip preventive medicine anymore or you can't be ignoring this part of the process anymore I I have a hard time and this is not going to make me friends in the medical community unfortunately but so I grew up both in the United States and out of the United States in very low SES communities and the idea of being able to make the first day my first job outside of medical school I'm going to be making the median household income in the United States like that's my first job my first paycheck I'm already there. Let alone when I'm in attending and I'm making, you know, well into the six figures, even if I'm in primary care, I'm making me just one person uh, more than like three other families. That's insane to me. And so I have a hard time, and maybe I shouldn't, but I have a hard time when we have conversations as providers, well, I'm not getting compensated enough. Uh, yeah. Because for me, it's like, I get it. Like, I also want my kid to go to a good school and all this stuff, but I want, at the end of the day, I want to take care of our patients.
2: But perhaps the underlying Statement that they're when they're saying I'm not being compensated enough is that there's just not enough time in the day To do those extra things that I'm already not getting You know paid for yeah, Yeah. I just I want to be a little sympathetic to that Yeah, Yeah,
1: and I just have to pay for medical school a lot
3: of the burnout comes from how people spend their time Mm -hmm. You know not that yeah, they're not getting compensated enough period. Well, I mean, yeah Some people complain about that and I agree it kind of irritates me like you're getting paid fine stop <laughs> Yeah, But it's more how you spend your time. And you know, in, in primary care, we talked a bit about this last time, but just the clerical and bureaucratic burdens that now fall on the physician because of our fragmented system. Like there was a study that just recently came out that for an eight hour day in clinic, there's five plus hours of EMR tasks and other bureaucratic tasks. So it's like you finish your day at five seeing patients but then all the steps to get them the care they need whether it's clicking through you know thousands of buttons in, in the EMRs which we talked about last time faxing records typing things in a certain way just to appease the chart doing peer to peers calling insurance companies all of that stuff typically happens after hours and so it's uncompensated you know just in the sense that you are getting paid to see patients and let's say work from 8 to 5 and All of these hours of tasks are just spilling over into your free time. It's spilling over into your nights and spilling over into your weekends. So I agree, I think doctors are paid paid plenty. You know That's not really something that we should be complaining about, or if we complain about it, I'm not very sympathetic to that argument. I am sympathetic to how we spend our time and the amount of bureaucratic work that falls on everybody's plates and how we don't properly outsource this work to either the technology that just honestly should be working better by now or team-based care you know where we have medical assistant support who can be doing some of the clerical tasks that frequently fall on physicians plates
5: yeah so mm-hmm. if you don't mind i i wanted to and we we could definitely come back to this but this was like a perfect segue to the other thing i wanted to talk about when we talk about I, so i've read a few books on physician burnout and these types of burnout in general and it seems like one of the big things that people cite is autonomy, that a loss of uh, feeling like they're able to do the thing that they feel like they're supposed to be doing, right? So like you said, because they're doing clerical tasks. And one that's frustrating for me as somebody who's maybe analytical to a fault, people don't like what they refer to pejoratively is cookbook medicine, right? The, the algorithms. One of my favorite stories in the book was the patient, like, I don't know, it was like the monitor or something had like kept flagging that it was a, a bacterial infection that it was sepsis or something like that. And you're like, no, it's hypovolemic shock. And I know that, but everybody's like, do you want to push antibiotics? Do you want to push antibiotics? I wonder what you think, especially as we're going into this AI world, like, is there a place for these algorithms and for these programs to to be taking away some of those things that we shouldn't be doing so that we can focus on the things that we can be doing, or are they getting in the way? I guess that's kind of a, it's a big question.
3: It's a huge question. Cause the answer is both. And in that story, I felt like I spent so much time wrestling with how to write and how to capture that balance between checklists, I would call it mm-hmm. and then physician autonomy. So yes, people call cookbook medicine. They use that often pejoratively. But a lot of medicine is cookbook, you know, like I'll be the first to say, I don't want to reinvent the wheel every single time I see a case of community acquired pneumonia or heart failure.
2: Yeah, like what you think, like 90 percent of things that you would see in the clinic are going to be easily taken care of using that cookbook, right?
3: Yes. And so I'm not personally you know, offended if we have technology, take some of that off my plate. In fact, I would welcome that. And I think most physicians should welcome that. I love algorithms. You know, I love the fact that I, I I have certain apps. Like when I started out in medicine, I wanted to download as many apps as I possibly could on my phone that would outsource some of this, you know, basic pattern recognition for me, so then I can focus on higher level things. And so, you know, there was an app where I put in a patient's symptoms or objective findings, and it spit out a whole differential diagnosis and um, that didn't challenge me, right? Like, I just appreciated that existed. And then I could focus on the higher level thinking, which was well, which one of these differential diagnoses is true and how to work with a patient to, to look for that. So I think, you know, overall, it's a step in the right direction. It is good to rely on algorithms that can outsource pattern recognition because so much of medicine is pattern recognition. I think historically, there has been resistance in the medical community, you know, thinking that only doctors can do this. (laughs) Certainly machines can't do this, which I disagree with. I think there's a lot of opportunity for machines to take over some of the work that we do. It wouldn't replace physicians. It would actually let physicians work, I believe, at the top of their license. And so, you know, one of the stories I told in the book, too, was about this man who had, who came into the emergency room over and over for the same exact reason. It was that his potassium was critically low. Um, He was born with a rare congenital kidney disease where his body couldn't, his kidneys couldn't balance potassium and regulate potassium as they would otherwise. And so when he came into the emergency room, it was, let's say, the hundredth hospitalization that he had for this same issue. I didn't want to reinvent the wheel. I was like, Great, this all should have been worked out by now. There must be a formula, there must be a treatment plan that 99 others have worked out. So then I can just follow it and get him better and send him on his way and get him out of the hospital. I think the ideal would have been had that treatment plan been worked out. I shared that story in the book because the EMRs made it really confusing and it wasn't worked out and there was so much there was so much trial and error and it was so hard to kind of piece together his story just from scattered potassium levels in the electronic medical record that there wasn't a magic formula and so i think there's a lot of potential for ai in medicine to do what i hope the technology should have been doing thus far which is to offload some of that low hanging fruit Obviously, it really depends on the accuracy, <laughs> and if it just starts generating a bunch of errors, it's going to create more manual labor for physicians to then sort through and separate the wheat from the chaff. And I think that would be the worst case scenario. But I think best case scenario is that some of the pattern recognition is is offloaded from physicians' plates.
2: How do you, as a clinician, faced with a, for instance, in the this particular anecdote of the machine that was. Suggesting basically the wrong thing. How do you, I guess you know from your experience that it might be the wrong thing. But I imagine that there are sometimes uh, recommendations given by these machines that are almost right. Like they're, you know, along a spectrum, but not quite what you need. And I guess I'm wondering, like, how, what's what kind of interface are you provided to distinguish between... The thing that's almost right, and the thing that you actually need to do, or do you just use your brain? Like, does it say, well, does that, does the machine yeah. say, "Hey, I think you know, I've got a sixty-five percent chance that this is X," and you're like, "No, that's Y." Like, how do you, as a clinician, figure that out?
3: You still have to use your brain. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. you cannot off uh, you know, offload your brain <laughs> or outsource your brain. And I think the story that that Jeff brought up brought up is you know the, kind of the perfect example of that, where it was the electronic medical record that was flagging a case of sepsis because this patient had low blood pressure, a fast heart rate. I think they were breathing quickly. And so I was paged, I was on call that night, and I was paged to a rapid response to lead a code sepsis. And then you know when I got to the bedside, it was a woman who had been bleeding. And she had low blood pressure, fast heart rate, and fast and fast breathing because of the loss of blood. And it was like this whole team of cavalry ran into the room with me. And the initial thought on everybody's mind was code sepsis. It was like, follow whatever the algorithm and the EMR had alerted us to. And I just remember, like, I wanted to pull my hair out when multiple nurses were coming up to me and being like, doc, do you want to start antibiotics for the sepsis? And I was like, no. this patient is bleeding and one of the nurses asked me this is not to you know say the nurses did anything wrong it was just the initial thought when they ran into the room and everyone was trying to help one of the nurses had asked me well like doc how do you know that it's a bleed and not sepsis and i think i said something in the book like it was like looking at a chair and being asked but how do you know it's a chair (laughs) like there was a pile of blood in front of our faces and everyone was still looking at the emr that had been flagging us to code sepsis and so it was very easy to run into that room and turn on your brain yeah. <laughs> and just you know look at the pile of blood on the floor and be like, the most important thing actually for this patient is to get blood. Now, I also argued that the code sepsis was a good thing. Like Even though the algorithm got the details wrong of what kind of emergency it was, it got the details right that it was an emergency and we all needed to run into the room and we needed a lot of people to help this patient. And so it alerted us to the fact that we needed to use our brains. And I think, you know, actually, that might have been a pretty good division of labor there in the end.
2: Well, you made it to the second break. You tolerate us. If you can, consider donating or buying a sticker or something. Visit theshortcoat.com and help us do stuff without having to beg a dean for money. Thanks. I guess the thing that concerns me about this story is that I, I find that people are People find it easy to take what's directly in front of them and run with that rather than thinking through all of the different possibilities. One thing, I guess, that concerns me that differential diagnostic, dif- differential diagnosis process might just get accidentally tossed out the window because people tend to believe what they read. So, you know, the, the training that you need to receive about these algorithms, and I, I'm sure you do, is you know how to distinguish between a pat answer and the real answer
5: i guess to That's be right. fair to the algorithm <clears throat> how many medical students or interns or residents have been like i'm like pretty sure it's this and the attending is like uh, you were close you were in the right area but no it's not you missed a, a crucial detail yeah, yeah. so like i i expect that ai is not going to get it right 100 of the time i also expect that we don't get it right 100 yeah of the I, time.
2: I mean maybe the answer is to treat the Treat the algorithms, treat the AI as a earnest intern and at least for now, an earnest intern who, you know, is reasonably competent for an intern. Yeah. He's not like the th- and
5: the actual expert in the room. Right? <laughs> right. He knows a lot, but he's not the expert right. kind of thing like or it, I guess I shouldn't. Anthropomorphize a, a no, machine, it's but... inevitable,
2: man. We're, good. Yeah. <laughs> we're, already there. Like you were gonna Yeah. I say mean something.
3: no, I think it spits out it the AI or the algorithm can spit out a differential diagnosis, but it still takes you as the clinician to look through that differential diagnosis and say it's this and not that. Yeah. But the benefit of spitting out that differential diagnosis is it might alert you to something that you just forgot. You know, we yeah. all have our own biases. We might be biased by cases that we've recently seen, and we just see something similar, and we think, "Oh, it's this." We all have confirmation biases. I think there's value to spitting out something that's thorough, so then you can sort through and use your brain about what the most likely possibility is.
2: But is that what these algorithms currently do? I don't know. i of not- them do. Okay.
5: Good. So
3: that app I brought up—it's called Isabel. Like that's the one that you, you plug in a patient's symptoms, that I use my intern year, and it spits out a differential diagnosis. And I was like, "Huh." you know, I remember thinking oh, malaria. I didn't think of that. Like it wasn't malaria, but it, you know, it came up with a dif- differential diagnosis that then just helped me. I felt be thorough yeah. and not miss anything.
5: And I, and I will say that's how I've used like programs, like for example, GPT or any of these chatbots, <clears throat> when I've used them to help me with my studies and stuff that with the right prompt, you can say things like give me a broad differential. That's because that's what I want, right? I want to be able to look at all of these things and consider like what like you said like oh i didn't even consider malaria even though it wasn't malaria this is something that maybe down the road like i should be able to consider that you know
1: right yeah it kind of reinforces that pattern recognition in some ways so like the things that you don't think of normally because of your own biases like all of a sudden it's there and it's like kind of poking you and that's positive in some yeah. ways yeah that's where i feel like it can be a really
0: helpful tool when created and We just need to make sure that people don't become reliant on, oh, there's one answer and it has to be right. Because, like you said, you still have to turn on your brain. You still have to think through because people are human and they don't always know what to tell you that's important about their story. Mm -hmm. So there might be other things that you don't even know about yet. And similarly, AI doesn't know about that. So if they can generate a list of things to get you thinking then you can take that initiative and ask additional questions and try and figure more things out just to be as thorough as possible.
5: I will say though, that my, my thought and feel free to interject here. You have much more experience in the field than I do, but I I have this sense that uh, there are a lot of people that, are like i said they're kind of hesitant when it comes to like the cookbook medicine and and the algorithms that we use that we go through already in our heads they're like you know think for yourself don't just go down the checklist right which is fair because every patient is unique and the checklist is a good jumping off point but isn't the end-all be-all for every patient um patients don't neatly fit into all of our algorithms unfortunately i think that a computer-generated algorithm is more or less the same thing where it's like you have a, a valid point which is you don't just accept it as gospel fact, but at the same time, if it gets us closer and then from there we can branch out, I think in the long run, that's going to be better for our patients.
3: I agree, but you guys are all talking to a millennial physician here. You know, maybe if you were interviewing <laughs> an older generation, the opinion would be different. <laughs> like I welcome any tech support that would get us closer to treating patients better.
5: I, I have um, a friend who's, he's an intern at Yale right now, of a former Iowa student and I was visiting with him recently and he was telling me, yeah, we've got an AI that is integrated into the EMR now. And he's like, at first I thought it was going to be the worst, but it does. It kind of helps with broad differentials. It helps pull things from, like you said, when you've got 99 visits before this for this patient and you're trying to like scramble through the notes, trying to find what's actually relevant and helpful and you can't because it's so confusing and jumbled. I think the idea of an AI that might be able to pull that stuff, the more relevant stuff to read those 99 notes, that would be great. I would love
0: that. Yeah.
3: I think taking a step back, you know, the, from my vantage point, the best use of AI in medicine is actually helping with all of this administrative garbage yeah. that you know physicians and are currently and other healthcare workers are all currently dealing with. Sure, um, like maybe taking a transcript, the electronic medical records that are scattered everywhere, yeah. and it's pulling together, you know, maybe a sentence or a paragraph about what's actually going on with the patient. It's cleaning up the messes of the old tech. And taking the clerical work off our plates,
2: yeah. yeah. Like maybe taking a transcript of the encounter and coming up with a draft of a note or something like that would, yeah, would be even- yeah.
3: That's the per. That's the perfect use. You know, that's not working at the top of our licenses to be doing that ourselves right. over right. and over. Right. You know, my my concern about this. I mean, there's many, but one of my concerns about this is that we are going to end up spiraling. <laughs> making worse, basically exacerbating a situation that we already have now. Like I'm old enough to remember, you know, when paper charts were converted to electronic medical records and they promised they would already be doing all of this stuff for us. And they promised that it would make, it would take clerical work off doctor's plates, but then the opposite happened because the EMRs were just able to generate so much noise. And my concern about AI is just the ability to generate even more noise at higher volumes and faster further cluttering of a very mm. a, an already very cluttered electronic ecosystem and then resulting in more manual labor on healthcare workers plates to separate the wheat from the chaff you know i think that's the worst case scenario but again going back to the best case scenario it removes the clerical work from our plates it takes on so many of these tasks that the technology had promised to be doing for us so far and it just hasn't been
2: i think the other thing that i often think about when they're like oh you know ai is going to solve these problems and make it easier for us historically uh, you know technology has freed up uh time but it's also and it, it's also we also tend to fill up that new time with other things uh once we've got it and Maybe that's not, I mean, th- that's helpful in this situation, but also like it's possible to, that the powers that be would see, oh, these doctors have all this new time. Now we're going to make them do X, Y, and Z. That's outside of, you know, it's what we want them to do, but it's outside of their
3: that's uh, fair. Experts. I yeah. would also just argue it can't be worse than what's already happened. <laughs> so much of our time is spent on things that are not doctoring.
5: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I guess my... My, my hope is, so I talked to a doctor who practiced in Europe and then is now practicing in the U S and they talked about the difference in the length of, um, notes that doctors write and how in the United States, it's just, they're like novels. (laughs) Like we're writing books over here compared to what they do there. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Right. But yeah, I guess I would be concerned that AI might perpetuate that or, or exacerbate that. Right. But I think that for me kind of highlights one of the most important parts of this. And I think maybe a big part of your book, which is. That it's not just we need to use these tools and these tools are going to make our lives better, which hopefully they do, but we also need to be looking at the rules of the game. We need to be looking at how we are designing the system. And I think that we need to make sure that physicians, clinicians that are part of using that, that are helping the patients. They need to be in the rooms having these conversations about, yeah, of course we want AI and the EMR to, to help us clean this up or to unclutter it. This is how it should be because this is how it's going to help me help my patients. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Those kinds of conversations. I just,
2: the best way to use this tool. Yeah. I, I
5: think that I, I, I don't want to put the blame on my future coworkers, but I think that we as a field certainly have room to take responsibility for how our systems are designed to going forward to make sure that they're better for ourselves and for our patients. Um, I think
3: that was perfectly put, and I argue in the book that so many innovations that we need to get to in the tech sphere, the biggest barriers there are not actually technological barriers. Sure, there are technological barriers, but we have to understand the underlying incentives and the underlying design problems that got us to where we are. And so, you know, just a quick example, the notes are getting longer, let's say, Something that maybe you already have experience doing when you see a patient is you have to chart something called a review of systems Mm -hmm. where you are asking a patient like this whole litany, this whole checklist of things that they don't have, even if they're there for something like a cold, you have to be like no neurologic symptoms and no home symptoms and no, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if we design the tech to be writing these notes for us, well, I mean, that's great because we don't have to write. 14 point review of systems negative and add all that clutter, but somebody else is adding all that clutter. It's the AI Um, and we would have to go back to why we need to put all of that into a note in the first place. And that's not a tech issue. I mean, that's a design issue. That's an incentive issue. That's a billing issue. Um, It's why it's getting back to working with insurance companies too. And like, why do you need all of this stuff in order to bill for a patient visit? And so there needs to be a lot of different stakeholders at the table Um, It's not just physicians and programmers. It's physicians, programmers, insurance companies, um, patients, family members, and I think everybody needs to be working together to be able to redesign systems where the tech can just not exacerbate some of the underlying issues, but actually help clean things up.
1: Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with what you're saying there. I think a lot of or what you just said previously where you're saying, you know, doctors are spending a lot of time doing things other than doctoring. Right. And part of making the system not so fragmented is going into all of these other spaces outside of medicine, like law and like tech and like, I don't know, social work and education and like humanities, all sorts of things. Right. That I, as one person like there's a reason why I did not go to law school and decide to go to to medical school. Right. And we can't be expected to know all of these different fields well enough to make like appropriate change. And so I wonder, like, who are the people that are, are helping you with this? Like, who are the people that you've been able to reach out to, who are the the types of roles that you've been able to reach out to besides those, like, like, there are the people that are advocates, right? Like, you are an advocate and a doctor. But, like, are there specific roles that, like, make more sense to reach out to? I guess I'm just wondering, like, who's the team? Who's working with you? Who's been helpful? I think one of the most
3: important members of the team are patients Patients know the system best. Patients are the ultimate you know, users. Like if we're talking about tech and looking into making it user friendly, like who are the users? They're patients and loved ones who have to navigate the system. Other members of the team are all the members of the healthcare team. It's doctors, it's nurses, it's social workers, it's physical therapists, it's pharmacists. And it's then the coding side, it's the programmers. And I think all are important members of the quote unquote team and all can be advocates for a better system. But many people kind of do just look at it from their own silo. And it's important to communicate across those silos so that we can create systems that work better for all the users involved.
5: I guess one of my biggest concerns is that when we say over and again, I just, want to, I just want to be a clinician. I just want to be practicing medicine. I don't want to do all of that other stuff. I just want to do this. I'm worried that the more we say that, the more we make it impossible to actually do that, if that makes sense. If we I leave all, that. if we leave all the decision making on how everything else is organized around us to other people, they're going to put things on us that we don't want. Hence, five hours after seeing patients of doing clerical work instead of taking care of patients because you, we have decided oh, this is all we want to focus on, and we're not going to yeah. be the ones in the rooms making decisions. In,
2: in in order for that to be a reality, in order for that wish to be a reality, you have to step up first. Yeah, and become part of a system that figures out yeah how to solve that problem. I think what? there are some things you're, that you're we already rightfully... working outside of your in doing that. You're working outside of being a clinician yeah. mm-hmm. uh, naturally. You know, I,
5: I think we rightfully outsource many things. They should be outsourced, and I think that there are some things that can't be outsourced. That are not necessarily being a clinician in order to be part of that larger team that's making making the change. Right to be part of those conversations. Right.
3: I think you make a good argument for why there need to be more physicians and leadership positions within hospital administration. But that being said, the whole idea is there are certain people that want to do that, but then there are many clinicians that don't want to do that. But you have your advocate, you know, you have someone who understands the system within that position of power that then can help let you be a doctor and do just what you want to be doing, which is doctoring. I don't think when people say, you know, let doctors be doctors, they're saying they don't want to be involved in hospital administration decisions about how we spend our time. I think, you know, we're saying we don't want to be doing paperwork. You know, we don't want to be faxing. And I think that with more physicians and in leadership positions, there can be a trickle down to everybody else so that they can be focusing at the top of their license. You know, the last thing I'll add about that is that You know, all of these bureaucratic tasks that we've talked about, they are the number one source of burnout for doctors. Like, it's not just keeping medical students from going into certain fields like primary care. It's taking people who have been practicing for 10 years and they're quitting, like they're quitting and they're taking non-clinical careers, you know, total waste of their expertise and all of that training. They're so burnt out from sending faxes that they're leaving medicine entirely and so everybody loses when
4: that happens.
5: Okay, so I think it's outlaw faxes.
4: I think it's so <laughs> interesting that the AI that we're designing and even that we're talking about is working towards replacing the, like the physician work of the doctor, making differential diagnoses and not the actual problems with being a doctor, the the bureaucratic side, and I wonder, like, who do we need to explain those problems to to shift the focus of the AI that we're designing?
3: Me, us, right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's why g- going back to what we said earlier. I mean, honestly, I feel like I, I we do say this a lot, or I'm trying to spread this message a lot. That when all when I hear people talk about AI in medicine, it is often about replacing the doctor work. But you know the biggest thing that's affecting doctors right now, in, in my view, and affecting patients is the fragmented healthcare system. It's the administrative tasks that are required to navigate a fragmented healthcare system. And it's just such a huge issue for so many reasons in terms of medical errors, in terms of burnout, um, in terms of burdening people, in terms of exacerbating health inequities for people who can't navigate the system. The best use of AI is administrative nonsense um, that doctors and patients are currently doing. And I really do firmly believe that. I think before we even talk about AI's role in helping us generate a differential diagnosis, it's like, it's solving a problem that's just not our biggest problem. It's solving a problem that maybe is number 100 on our problem list. The biggest problem facing healthcare today is that it's fragmented. And because it's fragmented, there is a ton of administrative red tape to cut through in order just to get care going. And that's where I think AI can help us the most. And I think I can end on that soapbox. Mm-hmm.
5: Excellent.
2: Yeah. Well, great. Any Anything else we want uh, to... So, I feel like we've still have so much gotten to only part you. way through this yeah. but maybe
3: uh, listeners are gonna get really tired if i was gonna, gonna well, maybe, so. maybe you I do have
5: this a, for me i i'm not gonna get tired of you maybe, <laughs> but i i'm happy to to let you have the last word on that one today because that was that was an excellent place to end yeah
2: well that's our show jeff thanks for producing today's show and bringing dr Yerkowitz back happy to do it appreciate that fallon jacqueline alex thanks for being a part of it
4: Thanks for having me.
2: And what kind of rap scallion would I be if I didn't... I love that word. <laughs> what kind of rap scallion would I be if I didn't thank you, Short Coats, for making us part of your week? If you're new here and you like what you heard today, follow us wherever you get your podcasts. shows show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine, student government, and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. I'm Dave Etler saying don't let the bastards get you... Down. I forgot our music. It's all right. I say it every week. Nobody listens. Nobody gets this far. I'm Dave Etler saying don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week.